Well, good morning. I'm sure you noticed a theme in our singing this morning of giving thanks. Uh, excited to celebrate Thanksgiving this week. Um, just be able to take that time to reflect and remember we should always be thankful. We should be a people who are thankful in all things at all times. It's hard. This is a hard world. It's a sin-cursed world, and we feel the effects sometimes more acutely than others. And so it's helpful to have seasons and times. In fact, Israel had them when they would come together and take special time to remember. So as we enter into this Thanksgiving time, as you're surrounded with family and with friends and others, just uh, it's, it's a wonderful time to just pause and remember and uh, to focus on what you can be thankful for and to do that, uh, do that with purpose. Well, I'm going to preach a rather unique Thanksgiving text. It's actually not planned as a Thanksgiving text. It's just where we are in the book of Matthew. Uh, you can go and open there to Matthew chapter 18. A few months ago, there was a three-year-old boy who wandered away from his home in uh, somewhat rural Montana. It's not a place you want a three-year-old wandering away. Uh, apparently, he was uh, fascinated with bugs and insects, and so he decided to do his own little nature hike. In fact, they were able to follow where he had been because they would see rocks overturned where he had been looking for those bugs and those insects. But after a few hours, the parents took note, or really wasn't even a few hours, they began looking for him and spent a few hours searching for him. And after not being able to find him, you can imagine, those of you as parents, fear and somewhat nausea that begins to set in, realizing you don't know where your child is. At that point, the parents called the authorities to help organize a search and rescue that included dozens of persons, from hikers to ATV teams to canine teams to drones, helicopters, even a boat unit was called in for the search. The area was well known to have bears and mountain lions, and if that wasn't enough, there were thunderstorms over those couple of days. Thankfully, after two days, the boy was found. He, was, he had found a, a shed. He had crawled into it to take shelter. It was about two miles from home. He was cold. He was hungry. But other than that, the Lord had been gracious, and he was unharmed. What's interesting is the links we will go to to help persons in need, the amount of people and resources that will be poured into that. When a condo tower collapsed in Miami, search and rescue crews arrived from all over the world, including Israel. When a group of, a team of, a uh, soccer team, a group of boys in Thailand went exploring a cave and thunderstorm rolled in and locked them away into the depths of the cave, hundreds and hundreds of people sacrificed and set out to search and to find and to rescue those boys. They went to extreme lengths to save them. Well, last week we were introduced to the importance of search and rescue when it comes to fellow believers. Those who wander away or become trapped in sin. We, do, we observe the loving concern of Christ toward those who wander off, not wishing that any would perish. And this week we're going to continue looking at this theme, this idea of divine or spiritual search and rescue as we continue 
looking at Jesus' instructions from Matthew chapter 18. And so we're going to back up. We're going to read the text we looked at last week, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to read down through verse 20 this morning. And Jesus asks his disciples, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, Whatever you lose on earth shall, be, shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that may, they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's pray. Father, we do want to give you thanks this morning. Father, certainly there is much we can be praying for. There are those who are sick, who are not with us this morning, those who are traveling. There's the pressing events and activities and needs of life that flood our minds even when we come on Sunday morning. And yet, Father, we want to take the time to pause and give you thanks. Father, as we've sung about this morning for the gracious work of Christ on the cross, of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Father, that you would welcome and call into your family those who were at one time not just strangers but enemies of you. And Father, that even though we continue to show that rebellion and that sin, Father, you so desperately desire that none should perish that you are the good shepherd who seeks after his sheep. And Father, you've called us on that same mission. Help us to be diligent to observe and to apply your words this morning as we desire to imitate you in the seeking and the saving of those who are lost. We pray this in your name, amen. This passage is fairly well known, Matthew 18. Even more so, perhaps, among those churches which practice what many call church discipline. However, I want to suggest to you, maybe suggest is too soft of a word, maybe I want to tell you that if we approach this passage from the viewpoint of how to discipline a sinner or how to purify the church, we have completely missed the point of Jesus' teaching. Instead, as we come to this text, we must approach this one with our feet firmly fixed in the context of this divine search and rescue plan. This rescue and the return of the wayward sheep that we looked at last week. You see, this right here is not primarily about disciplining the sheep, but it's about seeking, it's about saving, it's about restoring. 
Any other approach to this text, to our verses that we're looking at this morning, it risks the same condemnation that befalls the wicked slave in a parable that follows, found in verses 23 through 35 of the same chapter. So it's very important that we have the context in mind when we come to this text. In fact, the key to understanding Matthew 18, verses 20 through 20, uh, 12 through 20, it lies in first understanding and making sure that we remember the answer to the question posed in verses 1 through 4. You remember that question, right? The disciples, rather sheepishly, had the question drawn out of them, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They've been talking amongst themselves that day, and they sat down, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, pulls it out of them. So, well, what, what was it that you were discussing? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what we learned when we looked at those verses, as we observed them, as we looked at Jesus' answer to that question, is that it's not who we might have at first thought. You see, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who are most needy, those most in need of care, those most dependent. These are the ones who are of greatest priority. And as we were reminded last week of the shepherd who sets out after the lost sheep, leaving 99 behind, it's not for a lack of love for the other 99, but because of the urgency and the need of the lost sheep that he sets out. Just as a parent will ignore all their other children for a time while dealing with the urgent need of the one child. They do not love the other child or other children any less, but their focus and their attention is upon the child who has the most need at that moment. As we mentioned last week, it would be parental malpractice to do otherwise. If a child is sick and has a severe fever. You give them your attention to help care for them, help to cool them off, to cool them down, to preserve them. So, too, the greatest in the kingdom of God are those in greatest need. And there has been a growing urgency in these passages. Perhaps you've seen it. So we've been working through it. It was not enough simply to recognize who were greatest in the kingdom of God, that it was those who are needy, who are hurting, it was not enough to simply welcome them in to your home, to make, them, to make them of importance in your life, to not show favoritism, but to welcome them. It was not enough to simply not cause them to stumble, even though that is incredibly important, to not cause them to sin in some way. That too is not enough by itself. We must also, as we began looking at last week, we must also proactively go after them, seek them, help them, find them. We're to imitate the actions of the great shepherd, whom we read in Ezekiel 34, 16, promises to seek after the lost and straying sheep. And we've been given that same responsibility and so, verses 15 through 20 continue to unfold with ever-increasing detail a paradigm for us for this divine search and rescue mission. And so urgent is this need, so urgent is the need to rescue the straying brother or sister that the whole community may become involved. Everybody is to show up with their flashlights, 
and their maps and to set out in search of the one who is straying. And so as we read verses 15 through 20 and seek to understand and learn, it must be from the context of care for these little ones. Those who are greatest in the kingdom of God because they are in greatest need. As one commentator notes, Jesus is teaching about an extreme form of caring, of compassion, of concern for a fellow disciple in a situation of terrible need. And so as we prepare to dive into the details of the text, there's a few questions I want you to be considering. And we may not answer all of these today or as thoroughly as you would like this morning. So don't get upset with me if it's a bit of a cliffhanger. But here's some questions I want you to ponder over the next couple of weeks. One, is this paradigm exhaustive? In other words, does it speak to every type of situation? Does it provide every detail that's needed? Two, is it absolute? Are there any variations to how we apply this search and rescue plan? Thirdly, should, should we go through this process for every sin or every possible sin we see in another person? There's other questions that we could probably ask, some that you'll think about and tell me afterwards I left off. That's good. You're paying attention. You're studying. But these are ones I want you to have in mind as we enter into the text and begin thinking through it. This text is not easy, and if I weren't preaching verse by verse, there'd be a temptation to skip this section for a couple reasons. One, it contains difficult subject matter. And secondly, because it requires a lot of effort to rightly understand it. For example, right at the beginning, we have an interpretive decision to make. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I imagine if I did, some of you have NIV Bibles, some of you have English Standard Version, some of you have New American Standard, maybe New King James. So there's some different Bible versions you have. And if you read from the English Standard Version, right at the beginning, you read, if your brother sins against you. Now, those of you with a New American Standard and NIV say, wait a second, that against you isn't in my text. There's no mention of against you. If you look in the margin, it may say something about it and why it's included or not included. So the question that's raised immediately, is this a matter of personal response to sin or to sin in general? I won't get into a long discussion of textual criticism this morning, though I can assure you I did a bunch of that this week. I'm just going to tell you where I landed And I think it's certainly possible that either of these are very plausible. But there's good reasons, I believe, for reading if your brother sins against you. However, even without the against you, it is rather clear from the immediate context, not to mention Peter's question in verse 21, that the sin is against another individual. And in Peter's case, he makes it very personal. My brother sins against me. And what this understanding does tell us and why it's important to identify that and recognize that there is a personal aspect to everything that's going on in this passage is that within this context, we are not talking about every kind of sin that could ever happen. For example, this is not talking about false teachers teaching false doctrine broadly within the church. 
Note too that the purpose of this search and rescue is not the safety or the reputation of the church. The Lord will build his church. Rather, what is the focus? What is the emphasis? It's the spiritual welfare of the individual. There's no two ways around it. This goal is seen in the second half of verse 15. What does it say? It's to win your brother or your sister. That is, to set them free, to rescue them from the trap they have found themselves in. They've become entrapped to sin. They've become entangled in it, and you're to win them, to help set them free, to find them. Galatians 6.1 provides a helpful commentary on this type of situation. Paul writes to the Galatians, saying in Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Do you notice how Paul describes the situation? The one sinning is to be viewed as one who has been caught, become entrapped. If you were to be walking about and you came across a, a little puppy that was caught in a fence or stuck in a ditch, would you pass it by? Would you look at it and say as you walk by, well, that's what you get? Notice what Paul says. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, of care, compassion. He does not say start the church discipline process. He does not say reprove, rebuke such a person. No, he says restore with gentleness. And part of this gentleness is the personal contact. You notice the intimacy, the one-on-one -on -one aspect here. You and you alone, quite literally... You and you alone who were sinned against or observed this sin are to go and try and win your brother or sister. Now I may be getting a little bit out of order, but I want to go back to the context. Again, our context is a sheep who has wandered off and is in danger of perishing. So what does that mean about this sin? One thing it means is that we're not to be sin hunters. This text does not demand confronting every little sin in a person's life. It's not because sin is unimportant, but there are times where it is perfectly appropriate to turn the other cheek and to show forbearance and patience toward one another. The Lord does that with us each and every day, probably every hour. Not to be nitpicky about every possible sign of selfishness or sin. Imagine with, with me for just a moment, and really what an unhealthy place it would be, if every time you didn't hold the door open long enough for me, I confronted you over your selfishness. Or because you inadvertently sat in my seat, again, how dare you not prefer me? So it's time to confront you. Or because you told a story about something you had done, maybe you had made it or built over the weekend, and I pull you aside and said, I need to talk to you about your pride. You're clearly elevating yourself, thinking too highly of yourself than you ought. Or I found out that you didn't read your Bible yesterday morning, so I need to confront you over that grievous sin in your life. 
That'd be an exhausting place to live, wouldn't it? We must remember the greater context of this passage. We are talking here about those sins that are so grievous as to give us concern for the spiritual safety and well-being of the one offending and drive us to want to go on this divine rescue mission to seek out and restore the offending brother or sister. Their spiritual well-being is at stake over this. That's the context. This is different than exhortations you might give just in the normal fellowship to excel still more, to come alongside and say, I understand what it's like to be exhausted. You know, how can, how can I help you so you can find some time to study more, to spend more time with your wife, to love your children better? How can I come alongside in that? That's a different conversation. This context is talking about the spiritual well-being of the one sinning. It's desperately trying to stop persons from driving over a bridge that's been swept away by the river. It's that type of seriousness. It's not out of vengeance. It's not out of a desire to see them humbled before you. If you go with any of those attitudes, then as we'll look at in the weeks ahead, you are the one in grave spiritual danger. Maybe they are too, but you have now become in grave spiritual danger yourselves and you're in need of rescuing. You see, this has always been God's instruction. It's always been his pattern. You go all the way back to the Old Testament. Yes, I know, where God doesn't have love, right? No. Leviticus 19.17, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. In other words, don't sin in confronting sin. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was the basis and the foundation behind Paul's exhortation to the Galatians, the Galatians 6.1. The sad reality, though, is, and you've probably noticed this, we're naturally rather defensive people, aren't we? We, no matter how wrong we are, We could be holding the evidence of our wrong in our hand when somebody comes to us, and we would still find a way to defend ourselves, wouldn't we? And so what does verse 15 say? It says, go in private so that the medicine might be easier to swallow. And the expectation is that a true disciple of Jesus Christ is going to respond. They're going to listen. Doesn't mean, by the way, this listen that he just sits there and hears your words. That's not what we mean. You understood that when we first read it, the natural understanding. But that listen implies action. And the action is to seek forgiveness, to confess the sin, to acknowledge it. That becomes abundantly obvious by what Peter says in verse 21, where he says, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus clarifies even further that repentance and confession is in view when he goes when he says nearly the same thing in Luke 17, verses 3 through 4. There in Luke 17, he says, Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. That's what the listening implies. It's the confession, 
the request for forgiveness, the repentance. And as we see in verse 15, this should be the end of the matter. It really should be. In fact, that's the expectation. You will have one that is rescued, a brother or sister. There will be repentance, there will be forgiveness, there will be restoration. Done, terminado, finito, nothing more to do or to say. The sad reality is what, though? That stubbornness, that pride, that defensiveness. We enjoy our sin too much, don't we? Like Eve in the garden, we're too easily deceived and treasure the very thing we should be repenting of. And so Jesus introduces a new hypothetical situation. If, in verse 16, if he doesn't listen to his brother or sister, if he doesn't seek forgiveness, then what? Well, let's look. Sin that has continued for some time may have so blinded a person that they are unwilling or unable to see that sin at first. And so it's important to remember that this can take time. For that reason, even before we get into verse 16, it may be appropriate for you to go, you alone, to that person more than once. Maybe even many times. Jesus doesn't say whether you go once, whether you go twice, whether you go three times before moving to verse 16. Wisdom needs to be used. Do not become impatient. Do not become frustrated or angry. And if you struggle with this, just remember how patient the Lord is with you. How many of you are still alive right now? Good, I'm glad. No hands went up, but I'm going to assume from the chuckle you're still alive. That means the Lord's been patient with you. It means he's been gracious with you. It means he's been merciful to you. And so we take our time. You only go and get help when it's clear you can't rescue them on your own. You show up to an accident scene, someone's pinned under a car, you try to move it, you can't, you go and get help. When it becomes obvious that you cannot do it alone, you cannot rescue them alone, you go and get help. Not because you're trying to build a case against them, but because you're trying to rescue them and save them. So Jesus says, take one or two more with you. Now, there's an important note here, and you've got to watch the order in which he speaks. He doesn't say, take one or two more witnesses of the sin with you. He says, take one or two more so that there will be witnesses and every fact may be confirmed. Well, what does this mean? Well, first and foremost, the other persons are there to help seek out the one who is going astray. Before you even get to the whole witnesses part, they're there to help. They're there to save. They're there to rescue. They're there to search. But there are additional benefits. They're able to observe all that takes place. Observe the accusation of sin. To observe the appeals to repentance and the gentleness with which the first should be coming. The response of the one accused will be observed. And if necessary, they will even dig in to validate and make sure, is this really right? Did they really sin in such a way? I mean, perhaps they find that there is good reason why the person didn't listen to you to begin with. And they'll help make that clear. You may have misunderstood. You may have been short-sighted when you approached them. And so it's protection both ways. 
Paul warns, as we've already read in Galatians 6.1, that this is a dangerous task. When you set out on this spiritual search and rescue, it is a dangerous task. You do not go into it lightly. The very one doing the searching is in danger of becoming lost or entrapped themselves. It's one of the other benefits of having one or two others with you. Keep you from going astray. Keep you from getting lost in this same search and rescue. However, if there is no repentance and the sin is validated, then these one or two persons will have the added responsibility of giving testimony before the whole community, of becoming witnesses to the whole community. Now, with that language, there is a temptation here to want to make this into a legal proceeding. But apart from the reference to two witnesses, there's nothing about this that is a judicial proceeding. It is shepherding. It is care. It is search and rescue. That's why we have to go back to the context. The desire here is purely restorative. You are returning again and with others who care about the sinning brother or sister in the community. Their care and their concern, again, is not the purity of the church, but the soul of the person. If you go more concerned about the purity of the church than you are about the soul of the person, you have your priorities out of order. I want you to hear how another pastor described this almost 1,600 years ago. It was a pastor named John Chrysostom, who was a leader of the church in Constantinople in the late 300s. And he described this process as a physician caring for the one who is sick. I don't normally read longer sections, so this is, this is unique, but I want you to hear this because I think it's rich and I think it's instructive. He says, Jesus does not say accuse him or punish him or take him to court. He says correct him. The one who is healthy must go to the one who is sick. You must conduct your judgment of him privately. Make your cure easy to accept. For the words correct him mean nothing other than help him see his indiscretion. Tell him what you have suffered from him. What then if he doesn't listen? If he stubbornly flares up? Call to your side someone else or even two others so that two witnesses may corroborate all that's been said. For the more shameless and bold-faced he is, so much the more must you be earnest toward his cure. Not toward satisfying your anger and your hurt feelings. For when a physician sees the sickness unyielding, he's tried, he's thrown everything he can at it, and it's not yielding, he's not getting better. He does not stand aside or take it hard, but he's all the more earnest. That then is what Christ orders us to do. You appeared too weak since you were alone, so become stronger with the help of others. Two are sufficient to reprove the wrongdoer. And this effort may occur many times as he attempts to lead him first alone and then with others. If he persists, then make the effort with the whole congregation. If Jesus had sought the interest of the aggrieved alone, that is the one who got their feelings hurt, who was sinned against, 
If he had sought the interest of the aggrieved alone, he would not have told him to approach the sick individual 70 times 7. He would not have attempted so many times or brought so many treatments to the malady. He might have just let him be if he had persisted uncorrected from the first meeting. But instead, he shows us how to seek his cure once, twice, and many times. First alone, then with two, then with many more. There's nothing in that that is punitive, that is to attack, that is self-centered. Everything about it is in curing, in helping, in rescuing the sinner. This morning we're going to come in for a bit of a rough landing. I'm going to hit the brakes hard and we're going to pick back up in this text next week. There's too much to say in the time we have. We're going to see two new hypotheticals introduced. And as we see the larger church body become involved in the search and rescue mission, there's a lot of questions we need to answer and things to ask. But before we go there, don't start thinking about lunch just yet. We're not done. There's something important we need to notice about the verse, verses we've been looking at this morning. It seems sad to me that this passage is considered a passage on church discipline. Because so far, we have not seen anything about discipline. It is about rescuing. Matthew 18 is not a set of rules for discipline. Does it have some discipline? Yes, we'll get there. But it is primarily, most importantly, a guideline for restoration and rescue. In fact, our job individually is not discipline, at least not the way we understand the word today, but to try everything in our power to rescue and restore. The only place we see what might be called discipline is from the entire community of believers. Even that will need to be tempered, as we'll see next week. Individually, for each of us alone, our entire attitude is seeking, rescuing, and restoring. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, right after talking about the disciplining of the Lord. But what is the instruction to us? Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, it's that imagery of the physician coming alongside, helping to bind up to help heal. There are usually two extremes when it comes to addressing sin amongst believers. There are some persons who run toward confrontation, and there's others who run as far from it as it possible. They'll avoid it at all costs. And these are two different problems to address. For those who run toward confrontation, the encouragement this morning from these verses is to be gentle, to be patient, and not to make every possible sin a confrontation. Take the time to pray about things before going. Try to see if it really is a pattern or if it was a 
passing failure. Give time for the Holy Spirit to work and convict. Pray that that would even happen before you go, before you even need to go. Don't be eager to replace the Holy Spirit in person's lives. There is a time and a place to go, absolutely. But do not be eager to replace the job and the work of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who seek to avoid confrontation, I feel you. But we need to reorient our thinking. We need to see this not as confrontation, but as a rescue mission. If someone was about to drive over a cliff, would you watch them go down in a fiery crash simply because you were too afraid of bothering them and interacting with them? Of annoying them by waving frantically and yelling at them? We need to rethink this. We need to reprioritize what we're doing. Think rightly about it. So I want to provide you some some practical things to do and to put into practice before you ever go and speak to another person about their sin. First, pray for the person. Pray hard for the person before you ever go and talk to them. Ask the Lord to help you see them as needy and lost. Pray that they would repent if repentance is necessary before you ever go and approach them. Ask yourself this in that intervening time. Is this something that puts their spiritual health in danger? Or is it simply immaturity that they are growing out of? Along those same lines, look to see if there is a pattern before going and talking to them. Remind yourself over and over and over again, it's not about you, it's about them. When you do go to them, ask questions. Not accusatory like, how dare you? Or, why did you do this? But questions that begin to help you get insight into their life. Make sure you have adequate time to hear what has been going on in their lives. You might gain a whole different perspective. And ultimately, you need to go being open to being wrong. Before you start this process, make sure that you're prepared to go the distance. What do I mean by that? I don't mean going the distance and getting them kicked out of the church. That's not what I mean at all. I mean built in fellowship and follow-up. Are you willing to be there and walk alongside them? Do not make your only interaction confrontational. Make sure you find ways to encourage and fellowship afterward with them. If they will let you. Make certain they know they are loved. Do not just parachute into someone's life, shoot at their sin, and make a hasty retreat. You will do more damage than good. Pray that you will not be tempted, whether it be in your speech or in your thoughts. While there's much more we could add to the list, I'll close with this. Remember, a soft answer turns away wrath.
as I was thinking about this, just in relationships in general, I couldn't help but think of my own children. So I'll ask the children and let them know I had thought of some great implications here for how you can love your friends and your siblings. Are you patient when someone does something wrong or are you quick to try and get them in trouble? Mom, dad, guess what they did? By the way, these are not just for the children. I think you adults see that. But children, do you ever stop and ask, if I was the one doing this, how would I want to be treated? And are you working harder at loving your friends and your siblings than you are at finding their faults? When something happens, you get your feelings hurt. Do you assume motives? Do you always assume the worst or do you try to assume the best? These may be more convicting in my own life. As we look at the text, as we think about what we've discussed this morning, we've talked a lot about this search and rescue mission, about going out and finding that lost sheep. But my guess would be that in a room of this size, there are some here this morning who are not sheep to begin with. They have never been found to begin with. You may be sitting here realizing you don't fit either of these categories we've discussed this morning because you've never come to the point of grieving over your sin and repenting. And yet no matter how deep the sin, no matter how much baggage you feel that you have, I want you to hear this this morning. Jesus loves you. He went to the cross for you. And if you come to him, he will not turn you away. Your sin, your selfishness, those things that have separated you from God and worse will separate you in eternity as you receive the the right and just penalty for your sins, which is hell. Those things have separated you from God. They've separated you from Christ thus far. They've separated you from knowing the wonderful joy of the family of God. But the good news is that God offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If you desire to be free from the guilt of your sin, then cry out to God for forgiveness. Express your spiritual neediness. If you want to talk to someone, find myself or one of the persons you've seen up front or who greeted you when you came in, we would love to talk to you, to talk to you about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we recognize that the subject this morning is hard. And yet, Father, we have much to be thankful for in it. That you love us so much that you not only sent your son to die in our place, that even after calling us to yourself, you do not give up on us. You still pursue us. And Father, you so often use fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters to come alongside in that pursuing. Thank you that you love us so much that you do not want us to live in our sin. No matter how happy we may think it makes us feel now, Father, you know what is good for us and your desire is to love us and to care for us and to protect us. Father, help us as we seek to faithfully and diligently apply these texts.